all of the ancient gods and goddesses, as well as the modern manifestation of them today, basically have one common message. That message is basically one word, and it is self. Now, whether you turn this message upside down or sideways, whether you dress it up in religious dress or put it in a secular suit, whether you cover it up or display it openly, whether you look at it in its pure and essence form or in one of its many forms, the goddess of self is at the core of all rebellion against the mighty God. The goddess of meism is at the very root of all unbelief. Self is in constant competition with the living God in our lives. Self is often frantically trying to unseat the living God from your life and from my life. Trying to unseat Him from His rightful place of authority and priority. Self is forever demanding our allegiance, is forever demanding our time, is forever demanding our energy, is forever demanding our money, is forever demanding our attention. Even in the mainline churches, the public confession of sin have turned around in modern liturgy and taken upon itself a self-centered form. Instead of repenting of the sin and falling short of the standard that God has set, I want to read to you just a short confession from one of the mainline churches. It goes like this. I confess to you that I have sinned. I have lived at the expense of my own self. In countless ways, I have failed to feed and nurture the image of God within my own self. I have been indulgent and have neglected my own flesh and my own history. That is the kind of image that is portrayed of God in modern church, self. Now, there's a modern prophetess of the religion of self by the name of Shirley MacLaine, and she said the following. She said, the most pleasurable journey you take is through yourself. The only sustaining love involvement is with yourself. When you look back on your life and try to figure out where you have been and where you're going, when you examine all of this closely, what you really find out is that the only person that matters is yourself. And as this religion of self constantly preached at your minds and our minds and our ears and our hearts, in the movies and on television. No wonder even churchgoers today have developed such a sentimental type of modern Christianity that is more like our culture than it is like the God of our fathers. Because of this incredible impact of this type of message of divine self, today Christians have shaped an image of God that is more like self than it is the God of the Bible. Yet God's design and God's desire is for Christians to have a true biblical perspective in life. It is God's design and God's desire for us to know Him and to reveal Him as He revealed Himself to us. And not the way that we would like Him to be. 
God's design and God's desire is that we may know Him, that we may love Him, that we may worship Him, even we don't understand all that He does. It is God's design and God's desire for us to obey Him and to trust Him, even when His ways and means are not fathomable to us. Today, God puts Abraham to the test. A test that we don't fully comprehend. A test that we can't fully understand. But it's a test that has a magnificent result. This is the eighth in a series of sermons from the life of Abraham. And today we're going to see Abraham is graduating with his spiritual PhD. He really has been through the school of God. Watch it carefully. He passed through his elementary education when he finally left Haran and went into Bethel as God asked him to. After a six-year detour. Then, in the middle of school, in his adolescent years, (laughs) he passed when he came out of Egypt. Then he graduated from high school when he let his nephew Lot go his way. Then in college, like most of you have done, Abraham learned that do-it-yourself type of religion was useless. He realized how painful it is. So after graduating from college, he went through a 13-year of spiritual slump. And then Abraham finally goes to graduate school, and there God put him through the test of letting Ishmael and Hagar go, and he lets him go. And today, he goes through his comprehensive examinations (laughs) for his doctorate with flying colors. Please turn with me to Genesis 22, beginning at verse 1. Verse 1 said, After these things... You see, everything in Abraham's life has been building up to this moment. Everything in Abraham's life has been building up for this moment of testing. Please listen carefully, believers. There is no doubt from the Word of God that God wants to mature us. God wants to mature His people. And the way He does that is by permitting testings in our life. Now, If I was in charge and not God, I'll tell you what I would have done. I would have exempted all Christians from trials and testing. I really would have. But you better be thankful that I'm not. (laughs) I would have spared the believers any trouble at all. My reasoning is very simple. We would have more friends that way. You know, we can win more disciples for Jesus that way. Right? It was St. Teresa of Avila who was quoted to be saying to the Lord, if that's the way you treat your friends, no wonder you have so few of them. (laughs) Please hear me right. We must go through the valley of testing in order that we may reach the mountain of triumph. We have to go through Gethsemane in order to be able to experience the resurrection. We have to go through the cross in order to experience the crown. No wonder Peter told the Christians of his day, he said, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing happened to you. Testing is not a strange thing for the saint of God. Christians in the West have grown so comfortable. We have grown so full of sentimentality about the Christian faith. 
And we talk about loving God. And we're not willing to give up a thing for God. Jesus said to every disciple before he joined, he said, count the cost. No misleading. Count the cost. Everything for Abraham was five-letter word. And it is this. Isaac, the child of promise. Isaac, the child of his old age. Isaac, the hope of his future. Isaac, the treasure of his life. Isaac, the child for whom Abraham waited 25 years. After these things. You see, obviously Abraham focused so much on Isaac. Obviously Abraham poured all his hopes, his dreams, his aspirations on Isaac. Obviously Abraham must have become so obsessed with Isaac. Obviously, he made an idol out of his son. And I want to tell you one fact. Please listen carefully. Underline it. Write it down. Don't ever forget it. It is a fact. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he does not like to play second fiddle. He's either going to be first or not at all. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and daily follow me. I remember some years ago, someone asked me how. He said, I can't comprehend that God would ask anyone to do such a terrible thing. I understood how he felt. Now, who wouldn't? But my answer to him was this. Abraham lived at a time when human sacrifice was accepted. Abraham lived at a time when it was common practice among the pagan nations, the surrounding nations, where Abraham came from, Ur of Chaldees. But Abraham did not know at that time that his God would not require him to offer his son as burnt offering like the other gods. Abraham did not know that his God was only testing him. So in verse 2, the Lord spoke to Abraham saying, Take your son, listen to this, take your only son. I mean, Lord, you know it's his only son, whom you love. And just in case Abraham tried to rationalize and think it's Ishmael, God mentions him by name, Isaac. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Now, I cannot imagine, I truly cannot imagine any knife that could cut any deeper into a father's heart. Like these words. Can you? But what is mind-boggling to me as I looked at this passage again and again? Is it no evidence anywhere that Abraham argued with God? There is not a word about how Abraham tried to get out of obeying God's request. Not a word. I will tell you. Any one of us, certainly if it's me, this is how I would have reacted. Wait a minute, Lord. Just wait a minute. (laughs) everything but that. Lord, do you know what you're saying? This is the son of promise, Lord. Lord, I I have a thousand rams. I'll give them to you. I'll offer them all a sacrifice. I have thousands of cattle. I will offer them all in one big swoop as a sacrifice for you. Take them all. Lord, I have lived long enough. I'm over a hundred years old. Take me. Lord, You don't understand the implication of what you're saying. Your promise is going to go down the drain, Lord. 
Your reputation is going to be marred in the land, Lord. My testimony is going to be tarnished in the community. Yet none of this seemed to be Abraham's response. His response was submission and obedience. But you know where the secret to that is not? Until we come to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. When the Holy Spirit, the author of the Bible, tells us that by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who has received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God has said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham responded that God could raise him from the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. That's a secret. Abraham at this point of his life, oh, he's taken so long. But he came to a point in his life where he learned not to limit the supernatural power of God. He has come to a point in his life where he would not put limits, the human experience, to limit God with. I wonder how many of us Really, really, when it comes down to it, that you really expect supernatural work of God in your daily life. Verses 3 and 4, Abraham rose early in the morning, and he took his son and the wood and two of the servants, and he went on their way for three days' journey to the place of which God had told him. I don't want you to overlook that little detail here that says three days' journey. Most of you probably missed it. Three days journey? It's one thing to be assigned a distasteful task and be able to get it out of the way and quickly and done with. And it's quite another thing to stretch it out for a long period of time. We don't know how Abraham handled the inner pain, how he handled the inner suffering, the inner grief for those 72 hours. We don't know the level of anguish during those three days that must have felt like three years in his life. And when they get to the bottom of the mountain, Abraham tells the two servants something that is very curious. Look at it. He said to them, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad, in the we plural, go up and worship the Lord, and then we plural, going to come back. Abraham knew that if Isaac died on that altar, he's going to be resurrected from the dead. Abraham believed that the God who rejuvenated Sarah's dead womb would bring Isaac back from the dead. Abraham believed that both of them would come back to the servants. He said, we are going to come back after we worship our God. And that's how strong his faith in the Lord has become. And here, perhaps, we can observe from a human perspective just a little glimmer of how both father and son have felt when the son hung on Calvary. Here we can see somewhat of a human perspective of how the father must have agonized to give up his only begotten son. What about Isaac? Well, most historians say that Isaac at this time was between 15 and 30. So he's a very strong lad. He was a very strong young man, actually. And he's got a father who's 100 plus. 
Isaac could have said, I have enjoyed the journey, Papa. <laughs> but I have other plans for my life. <laughs> and lying on that altar, not one of them. <laughs> How many of us have said to the Lord, Oh, I love you, Lord. But I cannot put my passion on the altar. Oh, I love you, Lord. But I can put my money on the altar. Oh, I love you, Lord. But I can put my life on the altar. Everything but Isaac, Lord. Abraham and Isaac came alone. They went up to the top of the mountains. They left the servant below. And when Isaac was placed on that altar, finally after he asked, and then was put on the altar, he had asked no question. He moved not a muscle. He entertained no thought of opposition. Jesus Christ could have escaped the cross. But he didn't. He said, I have authority to lay it down. I have authority not to lay it down, but I will lay it for your sake. Jesus could have called upon legion of angels to rescue him, but he didn't. Because it would not have been in keeping with the Father's will. He said in John 5.30, I do not seek my will, but the will of the Father who sent me. I am convinced that Isaac grew up Hearing it again and again, that the reason his parents are much, 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 much older than the other kids' parents (laughs) is because God had performed a miracle to bring him into the world. He must have heard it again and again, that God brought him into this world to fulfill his promise as he gave it to his daddy. He heard it again and again. That God is a faithful God and has always been faithful to his daddy. Despite of his daddy and mommy's failure, he's always been faithful. And Isaac saw the strength of his father's faith and he was able to follow. God's testing for you and for me may not include sacrificing our Isaacs. But if it was, are we ready? Are we ready? God's testing for us may not involve sacrificing your life. But are you willing? God's testing for you may not include giving up your reputation or your net worth or your all. But if He does, will you do it? Will I do it? How can a wife say to her husband, I love you, and yet she refuses to submit to his spiritual authority? How can a husband say to his wife, I love you, and he's unwilling to sacrifice time to nurture her and minister to her? How can we say to God, we love you, and yet we are unwilling to give back to him 10% of what he has given us? How can we say to God that we love you, God, and yet we are unwilling to trust him with the things of life? We are coming into days in this country, whether you're prepared for it or not, if you are, you'll be better off. I believe we are going into times in this country when some of us might have to pay with our lives for the faith of our fathers. Are you willing? 
And when the Equal Opportunity Commission issues a ruling which could be interpreted to mean that if you put a Bible on your desk, it's considered religious harassment. That if you witness to your friends at your workplace, it's considered religious harassment. And if a businessman invites Christians and his staff to come at his office at the lunch hour to have a Bible study, can be considered religious harassment. And he could be sued and he could lose his business in order to defend himself in the courts. What this government is doing reminds me very much of the anti-Christian governments in the Middle East in which I've grown up. First, the outlawed witnessing outside Christian churches. Then the outlawed Christian religious symbols. And the next thing was the outlawing the building of new churches and building and renovating old ones. You see, in their mind, this is the way they stifle Christianity, they think. I hear the same language. And I hear the same arguments. Now, some of you who grew up in this country, born in this country, you don't understand what I'm talking about. I hope you do. (laughs) And I wondered about this. How come? But I'll tell you why. Because there's the same devil (laughs) who hates the gospel, hates the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, sometimes I have to pinch myself when I hear some of that stuff. Folks, this is America. You have to live under socialistic rule like I have to understand what I'm talking about. This is America. And I want to tell you, as long as we can do something, let's do it. I have never tried to take political sides, but I want to tell you the truth. I don't care about the left wing, and I don't care about the right wing. I am concerned about the bird. I know. And you know what? The bird is very sick right now. <laughs> Verses 11 and 13. Before Abraham's white-knuckled hand could fall on his precious son, God had already provided the sacrifice. You see, please listen carefully. When you climb the mountain of sacrifice, You will discover God's provision on the other side. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham. He said, the test is over. (laughs) Stop. Don't do this. In fact, the accurate reading of that verse is that God provided himself a sacrifice. And Abraham have passed his test with flying colors. I know that a day is coming when all my tests shall be over. Grief, pain, tears, all will be over. I know the day is coming when all the struggle will be over. And when I see Jesus face to face, he's going to say, your testing is over. You know, when you listen to a radio announcer, and he says, this is a test, and beep, (laughs) and you turn your radio down, and then the announcer comes back and he says, If this was a real emergency, you would have been instructed of what to do. I want to tell you, we need to remind ourselves when we get into testing times. We need to remind ourselves that this is only a test. (laughs) This is only a test of the emergency broadcasting system. (laughs) If this was a real emergency, God will instruct your heart as to what to do. Abraham returns to his servants 
just as he promised with Isaac. We. And they came down together. Well, as I bring this whole series to a conclusion, between Genesis 12 and Genesis 22, we have seen God's prodding, pinching, smoothing, shaping, molding Abraham into the man after his own heart. We have seen God pushing Abraham to the edge, but never, never to the brink. That's our God. We saw Abraham's failure and God's forgiveness. We saw God's promises never affected by Abraham and Sarah's failures. God will do the same for us if we want to walk with God. If we truly want to be called friends of God, not friends of the world. Because all that God wants to do in your life and in my life, He wants us to leave behind all this is shackling us. He wants us to leave behind all of the Harans and all of the Ishmaels and all of the Egypts in our lives. Anything that might distract us from Him has to go. Has to go. In order that we may live an unshackled life. Do you want to live an unshackled life? His eyes are searching and they know every small detail of your life and in my life. I can't hide them from him. Is God calling you to leave Haran and you don't want to because it's cozy? Is God telling you to chop out Hagar and Ishmael from your life? And you say, no, Lord, I can't. Is God telling you to leave Egypt? Whatever Egypt is in your life, is God saying, I want you to be ready to offer even your Isaac to me. Between you and the Holy God, let's say, Lord, strengthen us to be unshackled from the Harans and from the Ishmaels and from the Egypts and from anything that shackles us. Our loving Father, we ask you to forgive us for trying to form a God in our own image to worship. That we have taken ourselves into the sentimental road and we have neglected to know the God of the Scripture. Father, we know that you are pure love and you are fair and you are just and you never tempt us beyond our ability to bear. With that confidence and that assurance, we want to say thank you, Lord. And now, Holy Spirit, come upon us as we respond to your call, as we renew our covenant with you. Free us, empower us, strengthen us. For it is in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.